Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. I think at the time there was about 2,800 patient advocacy organizations in cancer. And you know now it's something like 40,000 and we're all better for it. From Offscript Media, this is Out of Patience. I am Matthew Zachary. Today on the show, I welcome Linda Bohannon, president of the Cancer Support Community, the largest nonprofit provider of social and emotional support for anyone touched by cancer. An oncology nurse by trade, Linda and I go back way before stupid cancer to the mid-2000s when she was running advocacy relations for Lilly Oncology. This was during the official U.S. launch of Lilly Oncology on Canvas which was a groundbreaking effort for its time that you'll hear way more about during our conversation today. The cancer support community itself has a 40-year backstory worth really appreciating. Linda takes us down that rabbit hole, including her own stint during high school, volunteering for the organization she would wind up leading one day. We also talk about the current state of nursing, including COVID's impact on the profession, the hope for a turnaround about the nursing shortage, struggles of carrying the emotional burden of work home with you, and rounded out with nonprofit leadership life hacks during a global pandemic. Enjoy the show. Linda, thank you so much for coming on Out of Patience. I wanted to start our conversation by referencing how people who know me for my work in patient advocacy when they find out that I happen to be a pianist, they're like, I didn't know that. And yet that's kind of all I was for so many years. People that meet you and know who you are and what you've done, do they know you're a nurse? And they go, oh my God, you were a nurse? You know, Matt, a lot of people do that. They don't realize that I had a, a long career as an oncology nurse and that I actually started as an oncology nurse when I was 19 years old. So I've really grown up in this space. Was this the case where you were in high school and you kind of knew that's what you wanted to do or it just became something that was like, oh, that sounds cool? No, 100%. I actually went to volunteer, you know, in high school for the National Honor Society and things. You do volunteer hours. So I went to the hospital to volunteer and this was in 1981. And they, you know, the hospital said, do you want to work on the cancer unit? We don't have a lot of people who want to work on the cancer unit. And I said, great, I'd love, you know, I'd love to do that. And that was it. From that point on, I, I've never, I've never looked back and I've always, you know, been fortunate enough to, to create a life in cancer and touch a few people along along the way, but not nearly in ways that, that I've been touched. Looking at how far we've come in medicine, healthcare, wellness, acknowledgement that the person and their well-being is just as important as the disease they're being treated for. How has nursing evolved? If you put yourself into the mind and body of the 18-year-old in nursing school and college, what is their journey like 
now versus what yours was like when you were in school? You know, I would say that the difference is the way in which care was delivered. So when I graduated from school, still in cancer, most care was delivered on the inpatient unit in a model that was called primary care model. So when if you were a patient, every time you came in for your cancer treatment, you had the same nurse. And so we were really able to establish um, a, a deep deep, deep relationship with both the patient and the caregiver. And I would say what has changed over time is that we've shifted care to the outpatient setting. And I do believe that there still are those deep, uh, deep relationships. Um, but the intensity might be a little bit different, you know, being on the outpatient in the outpatient setting than, than we experienced on the inpatient setting. And I, you know, I do think a lot of that is also driven by just the advances in technology. You know, patients are in and out a lot faster than they used to be. Um, they move on with their therapies in a way that they didn't used to. Um, and those are all great, great things that I'm, I'm really happy about, but it is, it is different. Although I will, uh, I will say that, as you know, I lost my dad to AML about four years ago and the nurses that he encountered on all aspects were amazing. I'm here in Indianapolis at a small, a small hospital called St. Francis. And I can't say enough about the, the way that he was treated in that hospital and the relationships that he developed with his nurses. Do you ever get a chance to interact with the younger nurses these days? I mean, obviously, it was unfortunate that you interacted with them because of your father's passing. But as an experienced nurse, a veteran of the nursing profession for many, many years, it must be incredible to speak to the next generation and find out that, wow, this is a thing. I can be a part of this. It, 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 you make a huge dent. Absolutely. And one of the things that I did in my transition of my career is I started to do some continuing education programs. And the whole concept of the continuing education program was how do you teach new nurses or nurses who are sort of in that window of transition, five to seven years, how they can use their nursing background to springboard into whatever they want to do moving forward. You know, I think in that five to seven year window, you know, all of us sort of stop and think, okay, is this what I really want to do? How do I want to invest my time? Do I want to continue in, you know, the current vein? Um, but I really tried to establish a way in which to reach people to say, okay, look, you started off in nursing. To me, I still think it's one of the most amazing professions. I happen to have a, a daughter and a son-in-law who are teachers, and I also um, think that those are amazing professions. But you know, you you started in nursing. It's an incredible career. It's an incredible profession. So how do you anchor yourself in that and do other things if you want to explore other things? Get your nurse practitioner, become a nurse anesthetist. You know, whatever that really looks like for people. Um, but how do you how do you do that? Yeah, I mean the, the awareness of these subspecialties these days is profound. And, and to not even know that you could do this and do that, it's like extra cool. I have a quick question for you. This is just my, my ignorance chiming in. The nursing shortage yeah, obviously probably made worse this year uh, during COVID. But to your extent, where are there any solutions in helping to inspire more young women or young men to enter that profession? You know, I think that you're right in that, that this year probably accelerated the nursing shortage. I also think that um, this year also helped create a new interest in, in the field, you know, just being able to, to want to become a part of the solution for people who were, you know, kids who were undecided in terms of what they, what they wanted to do moving, moving forward. So I'm really hopeful that, that this 
you know, pandemic has in some way inspired people to become a part of the solution. I do love some of the things that I'm hearing in terms of funds that are being created to help with tuition assistance or tuition forgiveness, you know, student loan type of forgiveness. And I think that that's probably where we need to go, just given the, the debt to debt to income ratio that we see for young adults coming into the workplace. And so I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty hopeful about that. Yeah, I just want to give a nod to the nursing societies that do amazing things. My wife's in a union. I think unions can do phenomenal work. But from the perspective of protecting nurses and ensuring their integrity, their mental health, how you manage the burden of going home at night and dealing with a family and your your energy is drawn all day, every day. Yeah. The support structures for nurses, they're there. Yeah, 100%. And we at the cancer support community are actually standing up a program called Helping the Helpers. I think you know that we are the largest employer of licensed mental health professionals for people with cancer in the world. And we are leveraging those resources to provide support to those who are on the front lines, whether it be a nurse or a social worker or a physician or a phlebotomist or a respiratory therapist, whoever that is, will be standing up a service to be able to support them. Right, which actually puts me in an interesting pivot to your conversation, which is the nurse that went into the pharmaceutical industry. And Mm -hmm. until I had met you, I didn't know a single person working in pharma in healthcare that was a nurse. I'm sure, obviously, you're probably not the only human being that did that. But (laughs) how did that wind up manifesting? It must have been a huge shift for you, but it probably seemed natural. You know, it was it was very natural because it was still anchored in the cancer patient. And my switch to pharma was um, going into medical information at first. And so my job was to help communicate about our science in a way that was meaningful and relevant for patients. And so that was sort of a natural transition for me. It, it sort of fed into my, you know, science geeky kind of interested side, but then also this compassionate of I can really touch a lot of people in a really meaningful way that may or may not be happening at the time. And, you know, that was sort of the the entry point in. And then once I was in there, I just realized, number one, it, you know, how amazing the organization was that I was working for and how committed they were to patients and how I could really influence and leverage their resources to provide what patients really needed. And that was education, support, an outlet. I think about, you know, the Lilly Oncology on Canvas program that we did, sort of a creative outlet for, you know, to express what they were experiencing as a part of and beyond their cancer journey. And to me, that was a really, really uh, nice fit. And, and I'm grateful to have had that experience for sure. Were there other nurses or nurse professionals working at Lilly at the time? There were. So at that time, you know, Lilly, Lily was really reaching into the healthcare professional community to staff up a lot of its clinical functions. So there were nurses and pharmacists, you know, working on the clinical trials teams, working in the field to help position clinical trials, help communicate medical information. So there were there were a few of us. So what impact I mean, I kind of think I know the answer to this question because I know you, but what impact, what difference does it make that a nurse has this role in medical information versus someone that isn't coming from that profession? I have just such a funny example to share about that too, if you don't mind, if I take a second. I think it is just, you know, having that sixth sense of what patients need 
or having sort of those practical solutions that can help patients. And I'll, I'll give you an example, and I won't mention the drug names, but, you know, we had a drug that whenever it was infused, patients would complain about burning at the injection site. And so it was just sort of natural for me to think about, gosh, is this is this particular drug acidic, right? Does it have a, a low pH? And is it because the acidic nature of it, is that what's causing the burning? Um, and sure enough, once we could implement solutions to help minimize you know, the contact of the drug on the vein as it was going into the patient, we were able to minimize burning. And that solution was very easy. And it was just to put a little heat at the site to dilate the vein before we turned on the drug. And it was an amazing, the difference that that made for patients. But to me, it was just so common sense from being at the bedside and having to work through solutions like that in the past, that I think those are the kind of things that nurses are able to bring to those type of conversations. Phenomenal example of how you can take the skills and the passion from one profession, apply it into a place you might not normally think it would work, but it did. And you stayed at Lilly for a long time. And I, I want to talk about a, a phrase that today is kind of jargon, but in the day, advocacy relations meant something. And yeah. you had that role. And I think I met you probably around the time or, or near the time that the oncology on canvas was working and, and you were at, and I'm like, what is advocacy relations? And go in your DeLorean, put on your time machine hat. What did advocacy <laughs> relations mean in the 2000s? So, you know, in the 2000s, it was, and everything, as you know, was just evolving. And the patient empowerment movement was, was just really growing and it had, it had gotten new legs underneath of it. And you know, for, for me anyway, and I think a lot of my colleagues, you know, I think about Catherine West, um, who worked with Amgen, and I think about Brian Garofalo, who was with BMS at the time. And, you know, I think for, for us, you know, the dinosaurs of the industry, you know, for us, it really meant doing whatever we could do to positively impact the patient and their caregiver. And, you know, what that meant bringing patients inside and helping helping our team understand what it's like to live with cancer, what it's like to have to go through treatment, what it's like to search for information that may or may not be available for you. You know, that was important to us. Let's bring patients in and educate people who are behind, you know, these, these walls. Um, if it meant supporting an organization so that they could create a patient education program that was meaningful and, and would help patients through that journey, it was a part of that. If it meant having a conversation with a lawmaker or a policymaker to help them understand, okay, what is the full spectrum of the cancer experience and how do we play into that? Um, it, it meant that. So, you know, for me, it was sort of the, it was sort of the full circle surround sound activities that at the time were sort of existing in silos, but there was no golden thread that was really pulling things through. And I think that uh, we were able to do a lot of good work around that, that, that continues today under the next generation. Yeah, I remember it being called something like, uh, like intentional spaghetti at the wall, because we yeah. kind of all knew it was leading to something. But we were making sure that as many holes in the dam were even observed before having your, uh, your thumb put in them to, to patch them up. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, as I was sort of doing some of my background work, I think at the time there was about 2,800 patient advocacy organizations in cancer. And, you know, now it's something like 40,000, you know, the number just in terms of um, smaller organizations. And I think people have a, a unique passion that they like to, to stand up and, 
you know, they're able to deliver on that and we're all better for it. Do you have any one particular story from your tenure at Lilly that stands out amongst all the others? Oh, gosh. Meeting me doesn't count. <laughs> um, you know, a lot of I, I, I will always remember the launch of Lilly Oncology on Canvas. You know, we, we did the we did the launch of that in London at the Royal College of Art. That was amazing in and of itself. But I think what was most powerful about that was, you know, we had asked people to submit art that represented their journey or represented how they were feeling about their cancer. Um, I don't think any of us expected the power that we were going to get in those submissions. And, you know, people were just so real and raw and beautiful in all of those submissions. And I don't, I don't think that any of us really expected that. And the thing that I'm, I'm really proud of is that rather than taking those pieces and putting them in a closet somewhere where, where no one would ever see them again, Lily invested in creating a traveling art show. So we were able to send that art all over the world, really, um, and, and allow people in waiting rooms to see it or people walking down the halls of, um, of, of their doctor's office to see it. We were able to take it to big medical meetings so that we were, again, able to expose healthcare professionals to what was sort of behind the curtain of the patients that they might be seeing in a 15 or 20 minute window. And to me, that's something that I'll, I'll always remember and always be grateful for being a part of, for sure. Back with our guest after the break. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So picking up on that, I do want to just do a quick shout out to the listeners that I was a part of Lilly Oncology on Canvas for many, many years. And from my perspective as like a noob into the cancer space in the mid 2000s, knowing nothing and knowing nobody before I even thought about starting a nonprofit, it meant so much 
to me as a patient for all of us to be recognized for how we chose to get through and ideally beyond by expressing ourselves. And that art is a universal language. It means something different to everybody. But to get into a room or see photos or anything or videos of hundreds of paintings and portraits and, and works of art from people all around who were just so excited to share their story non-verbally with the world remains one of the most powerful moments in advocacy for me personally. So an epic shout out for what it's worth to you and the team at Lilly. Again, not an endorsement, not a sponsor. I have to say that because it's the show and whatever. But Lilly on College on Campus, worth Googling, worth searching for, guys. Have a peek. You'll not be disappointed. And you know, though, we hand, we, I, I was so thankful for you to agree to work with us on that because the event that you helped us with was the U.S. launch of Lilly Oncology on Canvas. And, you know, we handpicked you to be a part of that because of your art. And as a cancer survivor, being able to share your art with so many in that space and time was incredibly meaningful for me personally as well. And I got to meet Regis. You did. <laughs> and that's the show. Good night, folks. I met Regis. Anyway, I'm kidding. <laughs> Linda, let's move to your next big revolutionary stint working for, and it's more than a stint. I don't think stint even remotely does it justice for the cancer support community, which I've mentioned on the show many, many times. It's not something unfamiliar to my listeners, and I, I espouse the virtues all the time. But I think it's really important to talk about how deep the roots go with mm -hmm. this organization. It's not just this, it's not fly by night. It's not mom and pop. It's been around for 40 years. It has been around for 40 years. And my roots go back to the wellness community as early as 1996, where I was a volunteer for the local affiliate in Indianapolis and had the opportunity to, to do a lot of their educational programming. So for me to now work for the cancer support community is just such an honor. And to, you know, to answer your question and to take, you know, your listeners through a bit of the journey. So the organization was originally founded in Santa Monica, California as an organization called the wellness community. And at the time, as I mentioned to you, we were doing so much of cancer treatment on the inpatient side, and we wanted to give patients a place where they can get away from that hospital setting and be in a home-like environment with people like them so that they can be themselves again or be with people who understood what they were going through. And we did educational programs and social activities and support, one-on-one -on -one support or group support, those type of things. And Gilda Radner actually went to that founding wellness community in Santa Monica and she writes about it in her book, and her wish was that there would be wellness communities all over the United States, because the, at the time there were, there were no wellness communities or real support organizations on the East Coast. Well, what happened was, is when Gilda passed, her family pulled her therapist from the wellness community and moved her to New York City to start Gilda's Club worldwide. And Joanna Bull is her name, and she's still involved with the organization today. So the two organizations grew up side by side. Wellness community sort of started to migrate to the middle, you know, from the West. Gilda's Club started to migrate to the middle from the East. And then in 2008, the Institute of Medicine issued a report called Cancer Care for the Whole Patient that essentially said, if you aren't providing quality psychosocial care, 
you are not providing quality cancer care. And that report really was the framework to allow the two organizations to merge. And so the the two organizations have come together now under the name of the cancer support community. We do have Gilda's clubs, you know, who have chosen to you know keep the name Gilda's Club. And, you know, we wholly support that and, and all that that represents historically and, and, and in present time, really, because of the people that are still involved with that. But we are now a network of 175 locations around the world. Most of those are here in the United States, but we do have a center in uh, Tel Aviv, in Tokyo. We have two in Canada, and we've got a number of others who are interested in replicating our model outside of the United States. Not only do we have still those brick and mortar facilities, but we also have a telephone helpline that is staffed by licensed mental health professionals and other professionals like genetics counselor, financial counselor, others who can help patients really understand what it is that they are going through or just be a listening ear um, if they you know, feel like they want to just have somebody to vent to um, on that telephone helpline. We also have um, what's called My Lifeline. And when you think about CaringBridge and Facebook, just for cancer, this is an online system where patients can communicate with a network of people that they identify that they want to communicate with. But we've expanded some of the activities on my lifeline to create bulletin boards and ways now in which people can talk outside of their network if they want to about issues that are you know meaningful and relevant to them, like nutrition or finance or you know specific topics related to their to their cancer. So that's our service delivery arm. And that's, that's sort of where we started 40 years ago, you know, in this little yellow house in Santa Monica. But we've been able to grow into two other core functions of the organization. And one is a research institute. So we have um, six PhD level researchers in Philadelphia, and they're social scientists. And they are looking at the cancer patient and caregiver experience. And they're looking at all aspects of it to try to help us understand, like this broader stakeholder community, understand what is it like when you hear that diagnosis? What is it like when you're having to think about your treatment options? What are the things that you're facing when you go to the pharmacy to try to fill a prescription, right? All of those kind of things that we don't necessarily think about, that team really digs deep and and helps elevate the patient voice around, wait, let me tell you what it's like to have a cancer diagnosis. And then the third arm of the organization is a policy institute. And the idea of the Policy Institute is to take what we learn from the heart of the organization, our service delivery arm, what we learn from the head of the organization, our research arm, and package that together and inform stakeholders at at all levels who are making decisions on behalf of patients what it's actually like to live with cancer (laughs) so that when they're making those decisions, they can do so with some level of knowledge of what patients are facing on a day-to-day basis and how their decisions may impact them, either positively or negatively. You must work there. (laughs) You know, I'm really proud of the work we do. We have an amazing team, you know, and, and watching our team during COVID has been so humbling to me, Matt. Just, it's, it's just been amazing the way that they've you know, stepped out of, of their normal amazing service to patients and have just amped that up. You know, we've got people who have been working all weekend, who have been working well late into the night to just try to meet the needs of the patients that we're seeing with COVID. And um, it's, been, it's been really humbling to, to watch what this team's been able to do. Yeah, I want to get to you opining on some of the nonprofit leadership life hacks you've gone through 
uh, to to run the organization with Kim this year. But I, I want to re- remind you, I think you may not know this, maybe you do. My first interaction into the cancer support universe was one week after my surgery in January 96, when I was made aware of Gilda's Club on Houston Street in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And I went, I was not in the right literal state of mind because I was in pain and agony and everything was still crazy. I had not started radiation yet. And I went there with my dad, who you know, my listeners know Mayor Lou. He was there on yep, literally yep. day one. And there weren't a lot of young people there. It didn't really cater because there really weren't a lot of young people, I guess, with, with cancer that are looking for these things in the 90s. Right. I, I felt at a place, but at the same time, I felt home. It was an odd feeling to be in a room of people. I think there were eight other people there. Most of them were in their 60s and 70s. And so they thought my dad was the patient and that I was there for him, which was, nope, wrong way, other way around. But it was an, the, just the, the genuity of like, so this is what it's like to be around people who are kind of dealing with your crap at the same time. And while I, I never went back because I didn't feel an immediate kinship and I had enough crap on my plate to deal with it, I went back months later, I got a real sense and it kind of fluttered and came back a long time later that this is what people don't know they need when they enter the, the cancer store. So praise upon praise for the longevity of things that actually work. And I can't understate to the listeners the value. You know, I always say when you enter the shit happens cancer store, there's no greeter. The cancer support community is a greeter. They're the hotline. They're the helpline. They're the people you call to find out what the hell do I do next? So bravo. Well, thank you for that endorsement. And yeah, if we could get everybody to to make us their first phone call. Oh my gosh, that would be, that would be amazing because like you said, we'll help you figure out what your next steps are in a world where, you know, you're, you're thrown into a foreign language and, you know, cancer typically means that it's life threatening, you know, in, in people's minds, regardless of what kind of diagnosis you have or which stage you're diagnosed, people still are in that spot. And, you know, I think that we do a, a really nice job in helping put all of this into perspective and walk alongside people at each step. So thank you for recognizing that. So I have a lot of listeners who run nonprofit organizations who love the nonprofit life hacks of things to do, things what not to do, but learning from the trenches while it's still active in the trenches. Have you been able to maybe wrap your head around some of the intentional or unintentional things you had to do this year to keep the organization afloat, alive, remote, safe, and effective? Yeah, it's it's been a ride for sure. We already had this digital property, and you, I, I know, will remember that my lifeline was an independent 501c3 organization. It was its own nonprofit that merged into the cancer support community in 2018. So we were already well on our way of creating this digital community with uh, the merger of, of my lifeline. And we're really lucky that that was, that was the case. And so, you know, as we were literally trying to, to, to meet the needs of patients as, you know, no one knew what was happening or how long it was going to happen or any of that, you know, we just knew that the, the quickest and easiest way that we were going to be able to reach people was either going to be on the telephone or on the computer. You know, we knew that we didn't want to put patients at risk by having them come into any of our clubhouses or having us go out into into those environments. So we 
we just rallied and I'm talking about the entire network, our affiliates rallied as well. And we started shooting videos of yoga classes and we opened our helpline on the weekends and late into the night. And, you know, we started to create a COVID page where patients, you know, patients could go at this, you know, to this one page and anything that they would need to know about the current status of COVID was, you know, posted on that page. And so, and I have to, I have to just give a shout out to my, you know, my fellow nonprofit colleagues, because I think we were all sort of in that space of, of trying to figure out what, what do our patients need? What do their patients need? And I think that we did a really nice job of communicating with one another to make referrals back and forth. You know, maybe we didn't have it stood up yet, but another organization did or vice versa. You know, there was a lot of exchange of information there. And I do have to also give a lot of credit to our pharmaceutical partners because, as they were trying to find solutions for the for COVID, whether it was through a vaccine or a treatment solution, we had a lot of them who really, you know, came forward and said, you know, what is it that patients need and how can we help get it to patients? And, you know, whether it was, you know, through us and helping us, you know, we opened a system where we could administer $250 to patients for non-medical expenses because that was the patient's number one fear, that they wouldn't be able to afford groceries or get to groceries or get to treatment. Um, so we had support for that. I know that there was an organization who worked with Team Rubicon to have food deliveries you know, made, and, and that was supported by industry. So it was just really a time where I think there was this all-hands-on-deck feeling in a way that I've never experienced. And I think we as a collective community uh, did a lot of good things for people and continue to do a lot of good things for people. The ongoing sand dance of balancing anything in this current economy mm -hmm. of chaos. But I commend you. I commend your team. And again, another fierce shout out to the cancer support community and a fierce endorsement of the cancer support community to be who they are and to still be here after all these years, Linda Bohannon, president at the Cancer Support Community. My God, we go back a million years. I can't thank you enough. You were one of my first supporters and funders and friends. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Godspeed and be well. Thank you. You too. That's all for today, folks. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Out of Patience with Matthew Zachary is a product of Offscript Media. Our executive producer is Matthew Zachary. Our senior producers are Jen Horanjeff and Andrew McDowell. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary. Our theme music is by the Mike Van Allen Quintet and by Mara. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit offscript.com.